Welcome to Beyond the Boardroom, where today we will be discussing Insitia's Corporate Governance in Australia 2023 report. Insitia subscribers can get their free copy of the report by visiting the publications page on our website, one.insitia.com. And there is also a reports page on insitia.com for non-subscribers. Plus, I have provided a link in the show description on whatever podcast app you're using. I'm Kieran Paul, and today I am joined by Victoria Geddes, Executive Director at First Advisors in Sydney. But first, let's hear from Insight's Publications Editor, Rebecca Sherritt. Thanks, Kieran. Happy to be here as always, and looking forward to hearing more from Victoria later. Well, absolutely. Um... Now, previously, I think if I heard the term shareholder activism, I wouldn't immediately think of Australia. Is that unfair? I think it kind of is, to be honest. Um, Australia definitely faces its fair share of activism and shareholder engagement on the regular. Australia actually ranked as the third busiest market in terms of the number of companies to face activist demands in 2022, with the US and Japan ranking in first and second place, respectively. And last year, 61 Australia-based companies were targeted by activists, compared to 72 and 69 in 2020 and 2021, respectively. But what's really interesting is that the majority of activist engagement in the country is actually being carried out by just occasional activists and concerned shareholders, rather than the big-name dedicated activists we tend to see in the US, for example. It's also mostly taking place in Australia among micro and nano-cap companies, so there's less of the big names being talked about in the realm of shareholder activism. The weakening of the Australian dollar has made a lot more local companies all the more attractive to activists, while the drop in equity markets and underperformance better helps distinguish the leaders from the laggards, which, of course, brings more potential targets to the surface. And, of course, we can't talk about Australian activism in 2022 without paying heed to Mike Cannon-Brooks' campaign at AGL Energy. Cannon-Brooks managed to secure board seats for all four of his dissident nominees in a campaign that was largely focused on enhancing the energy giant's pretty woeful climate credentials. Such a successful campaign suggests that ESG activism could form an even larger part of corporate and investor engagements in Australia in 2023. So the country definitely looks like it's set to continue to be a really busy space as far as shareholder engagements are concerned. It's also been an interesting time for corporate governance regulations in Australia. Why is this? You're right, Kieran. It's been a pretty mad year for Australia. What with the number of regulations popping up to do with both proxy advisors and ESG reporting. Last year played host to probably the shortest-lived corporate governance regulation in Australian history, with the Treasurer's proxy advisor regulations being disallowed by the Senate just three days after they were implemented. The ruling mandated that all proxy advisors operating in Australia must hold a new type of financial services licence and they were also required to share their voting recommendations with issuers on the same day that such advice is shared with their institutional clients. And all of this was done in a bid to enhance transparency. 
I actually wrote this particular article in the report. And I do have to admit, it was really interesting interviewing all the different people on this particular topic. There were some stewardship professionals I spoke with that argued that advisors are in dire need of stricter regulations to curb their influence, while others claimed advisors already face pretty tough rules in Australia, so no further action is really warranted. This really mixed bag of opinions probably explains why this topic resurfaces so often in the regulatory space not just in Australia, but internationally too. On the ESG side, there's also quite a lot of talk about new corporate reporting requirements, thanks in part to the appointment of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in May, who promised to usher in a new era of climate accountability for the country. Australia's long been considered pretty slow on the uptake when it comes to sustainability reporting, but now issuers and investors alike are prepping for some form of mandatory ESG reporting to come their way. In December, the Australian government opened a consultation on what mandatory corporate sustainability reporting might look like, and most suspect the final policy will probably align with Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Recommendations. And Rebecca, tell us about the key themes of the report. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, We've enhanced our reports this year to encompass not just shareholder activism, but also the latest trends in proxy voting, short selling, and executive compensation. And this way, we can give readers a truly holistic view of stewardship trends in each region and country that we're covering. And Australia is no exception. In the report, we explore why some of the most overpaid CEOs in Australia are actually facing only a minor number of votes against their pay plans. And in turn, we explore exactly what it is that does cause investors to oppose pay plans. And, spoiler, a company's climate commitments play a big part in investor support for executive pay. We also delve into why short campaign numbers are dwindling in the country, as well as how Australian companies broke records for the highest number of investor votes against management's say on climate plans. Overall, investors in Australia are being very proactive in reaching out to companies and encouraging them to enhance their governance, whether that be through launching proxy fights, filing shareholder proposals, or simply voting against ballot items. And we already have some new campaigns emerging from the woodwork at companies like Santos, Origin, and Green Critical Minerals. Our reporters will be keeping a keen eye on this space and reporting on all the latest trends and developments, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brian Stafford of Diligent, and you're listening to Beyond the Boardroom from Insightshow. So now it's time to speak with Victoria of First Advisors. So welcome, Victoria. Thank you, Kieran. It's lovely to be here. So on your profile, Victoria, on the First Advisors website, it says you enjoy researching your family tree as a hobby. Now, this really intrigued me. What's the most interesting thing you found out? Um... Well, I'm a fourth-generation New Zealander with Scottish heritage on both my mother and father's side. One side of my father's family were tailors, and on my mother's there were ship owners and sea captains. So one astonishing thing that I found out when I was looking at this um, particular part of my family tree was that prior to immigrating to New Zealand in the mid to late 1800s, 
two of my great-grandfathers and their families came from towns that were 10 to 15 miles apart in Kukubisha, which is in the south of Scotland. So you'd have to wonder whether their paths might have crossed in Scotland. But who would have predicted um, that 100 years later on the other side of their, the world, their um, grandchildren would meet and marry? So I thought that was a bit unusual. Yes, that is astonishing. How, how far yeah. did you go back? Um, well, on my tree, it varies, but the Scots were pretty good at keeping records and undertaking censuses. So I can go back to the 1400s with a couple of lines in my family tree, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> and I don't think there was all that much shareholder activism in the 1400s. No, no, probably lots of other types of activism, but yeah, not so more, much the shareholder type. <laughs> more violent, I suspect. Um, yes. Okay, well, t- well, tell us about your role at First Advisors. Um, Well, my business partner, Ben Rebick, and I founded First Advisors in 2009, which was in the depths of the um, the GFC. So it was a particularly challenging time, as you might imagine. Um, I have a background in financial markets as an analyst on both the buy side and the sell side, while Ben comes out of investment banking. So our skills are very complementary when it comes to working on transactions. Um, apart from managing the business together, which employs around 18 people, we have IR clients and we share responsibilities on transactions. So Ben tends to run with the M&A clients and I focus on the activist space and we both get involved in IPOs and secondary raisings. So your focus is is purely on investor relations and transactions? Uh, No, not entirely. Uh, Investor relations is the foundation discipline in our business around which we've built complementary services that are essential for listed companies when they're communicating with the market. The most important of these services is, apart from investor relations, obviously, is analysing the beneficial ownership of company registers. So you can't communicate effectively with your shareholders if you don't know who they are or who's responsible for both the investment decision and the voting decision. And as we know, they are often not the same. Um, There are only three firms in Australia that do this work, as it's um, very specialised but also very strategic. Uh, We also have a financial, media and corporate PR team, and we provide shareholder engagement or proxy solicitation services, which is especially important in capital raising, activist campaigns and M&A transactions. So we have a very integrated service offering. And just how important is communication in the finance world when there is so much on the line in terms of investment? In fact, the term high stakes is actually a term used on your company's homepage. Mm. Uh, Well, communication is critical. Companies might have the best strategy, a strong culture, good governance, but if the market's unaware of its track record and potential, it won't attract a valuation that reflects those attributes. And valuation is key because a strong share price enables companies to access the capital that they need to grow um, cost-effectively. So this is fundamental to our investor relations work with with listed companies, um, and obviously it becomes even more critical in M&A transactions where shareholders need to be confident they're receiving an appropriate valuation for their shares. And and what is your general assessment of activism in Australia? Are there any sort of unique characteristics, perhaps, that are particularly unique, for example? I write periodically for our blog on activism and have followed it 
closely for the past 15 years. And for most of that time, Australia has been second only to the US in terms of the number of activist campaigns waged each year, which people might find a bit surprising. Um, the defining characteristic of activism in this market is that it's dominated, and that by dominated, this 70 75% of companies with a market capitalization of less than 250 million, and most of those would be less than 50 million in actual fact. And around 40% of them um, come from the energy and basic materials sector. Um, the focus of campaigns, activist campaigns in this market is also overwhelmingly on changing the composition of the board. And in terms of recent trends, activism surged here in 2018 and 2019, but like the US, Canada, and to some extent the UK, it's been on a steady decline ever since. And, and going against that, um, interestingly enough, going against that trend of the Asian countries, particularly Japan and South Korea. And Japan, in fact, I think has knocked Australia off its perch as second um, after the, the US in terms of um, most, most activist um, campaigns. Last year, 2022, was a, a pretty busy year for Australian regulators, uh, with Josh Frydenberg's proxy advisor rule disallowed just three days after its implementation. Can we expect to see a similar rule resurface in the coming years, do you think? Um, I think it would be highly unlikely under the current government, which um, possibly has more pressing things on its agenda. Um and I think also while that particular initiative was supported by cor corporates, it wasn't very popular amongst the investment community. Uh, and in one submission, it was scathingly referred to as a solution in search of a problem. Um, much of it was driven by the um, perceived influence of proxy advisors' recommendations on the outcome of voting resolutions. And the government's case wasn't particularly helped by the fact that the regulator in Australia, ASIC, um, had conducted a really detailed review into the operations of proxy advisors in 2018 and had formed the conclusion that those concerns were, uh, were very overstated. Um, from our own experience putting together governance roadshows for clients, we know that the majority of shareholders use proxy advisor research and often more than one proxy advisor as, uh, as one input into their decision-making process. So fund managers and asset owners are in my experience, very aware of their voting responsibilities, and particularly so when it comes to contested resolutions. And and where does ESG activism sit then within Australia? Would you say ESG reporting is, is gathering some kind of momentum? Well, over the past six years, I suppose, ESG activism has been growing steadily from next to nothing in 2016 to around 28% of all activist demands last year. Um, unlike board-related activism that we were talking about before, the majority of ESG activism takes place in the large cap um, segment of the market and will typically take the form of research-driven lobbying um, or AGM resol resolutions being submitted or challenged. Um, the, so the two big players in this market are market forces and Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, and they're both quite active at the moment. Um, and the majority of campaigns are climate-related, so banks, mining and energy companies um, are typically popular targets. Um, in terms of ESG reporting, um, in Australia last year we undertook 
a detailed analysis of how companies in the ASX 300 were approaching ESG reporting and found that despite it not being a mandatory requirement, 90% were opting in to provide commentary via their annual report, their website, or as a standalone ESG report. So Australian companies are, in fact, very engaged in ESG reporting. And staying on ESG, uh, Mike Cannonbrook's campaign at AGL made waves in the ESG activism space. Do you think we will see more campaigns similar to this in Australia in 2023? Or would you say activists will likely stick to more financially orientated campaigns? Mm. I think um, financially oriented campaigns will continue to dominate simply because of the structure of our market here. But you'd have to say that um, Mike Cannon Brooks is probably an outlier in terms of a wealthy individual being prepared to back his principles around climate by investing in a company in order to um, influence the rate of change associated with its move to renewables. As an activist campaign, however, the mechanism was more about changing the composition of the board in order to prosecute that ESG objective. And as it so happened, shareholders were prepared to back him. Andrew Forrest, another billionaire and executive director of Fortescue Metals, did something similar in 2020 by investing in human aquaculture to extract both a higher price as well as ESG concessions during an M&A transaction. So in terms of the current year, 2023, the market's been very volatile with interest rates rising and there's a lot of uncertainty regarding inflation and the likelihood of recession, and we've seen that particularly in the market today, <laughs> um, that has kept things reasonably quiet, I'd say, on the activism front to date, but it's obviously early days. Well, well, thank you for all those insights, Victoria, and uh, thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure, Kieran. Now, if you enjoyed this show, and of course I hope you always do, I suggest you check out Diligence Corporate Director podcast, where hosts Dottie Schindlinger and Rachel Simon tackle the latest trends in corporate board governance. You'll hear interviews with board members, corporate leaders, governance professionals and researchers who have pretty compelling stories to tell. And it's not just podcasts, you can also check out Inside Today's Boardrooms, presented by Diligent Institute, a web show covering best practices for today's corporate boards and committees by going to www.insights.diligent.com. As for today's episode, we have come to an end. Uh, But thank you for listening and make sure to get your free copy of our report.